Welcome to Insurance Uncovered, the first podcast to bring you insurance news and perspective from thought leaders in the property casualty insurance industry. Insurance Uncovered is produced by the National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies. Hello, everyone. I'm Kathy Imus. Today, we're uncovering an investment in mitigation, how a new infrastructure proposal addresses the nation's resiliency, and a mutual is born. We talk with Philadelphia Contribution Ship's Carol Smith about the history of America's first mutual insurance company and how it shaped today's industry. There's a new push for the Federal Trade Commission to take a closer look at the rising cost of auto repairs. Democratic Representative Bobby Rush sent a letter to the chairman of the FTC to investigate the extent to which the cost increase is due to anti-competitive practices within the auto manufacturing, parts and repair markets, and what additional steps are needed to restore competition and therefore reduce the cost to consumers. NAMIC is working with members of Congress and staff to push for a hearing to examine these issues. The House is expected to vote this week on disaster relief legislation that would provide $4.67 billion for Puerto Rico in the wake of a series of earthquakes that struck the island. The infrastructure plan released on January 28th by the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee suggests a number of proposals designed to improve the nation's resiliency. The recommended investment of $434 billion over five years would strengthen the nation's infrastructure by reducing maintenance backlogs, designing safer streets, and reducing carbon emissions. The plan would also ensure that resiliency is a decision-making factor in the federal highway planning and project selection process with an emphasis on life cycle and long-term asset performance. The beginnings of mutual insurance in the U.S. can be traced back to colonial times. The Philadelphia Contribution Ship is the longest-running mutual insurance company in the country. And on today's Unscripted, our Chuck Chamniss talks with the Contribution Ship's historian, Carol Smith, about how the company shaped today's mutual insurance industry. Today's guest on Insurance Unscripted is Carol Smith, historian at the Philadelphia Contribution Ship. With NAMIC celebrating its 125th anniversary this year, we feel like we've been around a long time, but it's not nearly as long as some others, including the company that we'll talk about today. We call the contribution ship the first successful mutual insurance company in America, and we may get into um, why that uh, qualifying term, successful, is needed, but it was founded, of course, by Ben Franklin back in 1752. Uh, that's back in colonial times for us here in the U.S. So it's a fascinating story, and so without further ado, let's get to it. And Carol, thank you for joining us and sharing a little bit of history today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Chuck. So I think I can state the obvious that not every company, uh, even if our membership were more than 80% or 100 years or older, not every company has its own archivist and historian. In fact, I think none of our other member companies have one. So maybe you could tell us a little bit more about your role and how you came to uh, be in this role. When I, uh, well, when I was in college, of course, my, I majored in American civilization with a master's degree in material culture, which is kind of the equivalent of museum studies and started working for first the Green Tree at, right down the street and then the contribution ship. And they sort of created a joint position for me caring for the collections of the archives. And the joy of old Philadelphia institutions and old institutions throughout the country 
is that over the years they amass wonderful artifacts and wonderful records that are of great interest to future generations. So my role was to care for those records. And this uh, continued for a number of years until probably in the 90s when I had my second child and I went into a consulting basis. And so today I'm here at the contribution ship one day a week continuing to care for the archives and the artifacts. And um, they've taken some exciting twists and turns along the way. We now have a digital archive site. So that's a tremendous leap into the 21st century. Wow, it is. And uh, I'm sure it improves the accessibility a lot for all the archives that you have. I know that, uh, well, let's Excellent. start with the company. And, and you know, back in the day, we all know the reason for insurance and, and we have some ideas about um, you know, what Ben Franklin was thinking about in 1752, but maybe you can give us just the uh, Cliff Notes version of how the company was founded. Well, the company started, as you said, in 1752, and it was an outgrowth of a discussion that was held at the Union Fire Company. And the Union Fire Company was an organization of 24 to 30 men who gathered maybe once a month, they did some firefighting exercises, they had dinners, and they worked out business deals. And amongst the business deals that came up was an insurance fund for their own membership. And they quickly realized that with 24 to 30 people in their ranks, they didn't have enough to spread the risk. So Franklin, who came back to one of the meetings, said, well, just open it up to everybody in the city. So they said, what a great idea. Why don't you and Philip Singh, the silversmith, another member of the company, go and talk with representatives of the city's other fire companies. So at this point, there were seven fire companies operating in Philadelphia, which was a relatively small town uh, at that point. There were about 15,000 people in the city. And the boundaries were between the two rivers, but in reality, it went as far as what is now Independence Hall. The northern boundary was Vine Street. The southern boundary was South Street, as we call it today. So it wasn't terribly large, but it had good firefighting protection with these all of these fire companies operating within its boundaries. Those guys got together at the Widow Pratt's Tavern on a Saturday afternoon in August, and they started to talk about how this new company might be structured. And they were lucky enough to have a good example already functioning in England, the amicable contribution ship or the hand-in-hand -hand of London. So we think that they probably just took that basic framework and adapted it for Philadelphia. The other thing that was so fortunate for Philadelphia is that from the very beginning, William Penn laid it out in such a way that the city had fire safety features built into its planning. The streets were wider than average. Um, he envisioned initially that the city would be settled between the two rivers with everyone's house being surrounded by uh, a garden so that, according to Penn, quote, it will be a green country town and never be burnt. Mm. This obviously was of great interest to many um, who came from England. They probably remembered very vividly the Great Fire of London of 1666. Right. And it was the rebuilding after that fire, of course, that gave rise to the establishment of the British insurance industry, which is really the beginnings of all of our work companies. Right. So 
I qualified it with the first successful mutual insurance company in America. We could also say the first or the longest continuous mutual insurance company in America. But we also know, and I think it was in the 1730s, the Friendly Society of Charleston was exactly. the uh, first actual mutual insurance company and probably fire insurance company, right? Exactly. It was a property company. It started in 1735-36. You know, the calendar was going through some different changes. Um, but unfortunately, Charleston had a lot of frame construction, and a large fire swept through the city in 1740, wiping out half the city and bankrupting the Friendly Society. Right. And so Which then- is why it was so important that Philadelphia had these features that differed, that made it a safer place for an insurance venture, I think, to get started. So you've set the, uh, frame the setting a bit. It's town of 15,000, it's colonial America. And you mentioned Widow Pratt's Tavern. And I happen to know is you were kind enough to provide some images of archives that we have um, shown and we permanently display in our Washington DC office. But we have one of the receipts, which I think are some of the really neat history. But can you tell us a little about the early board meetings as the contribution ship was started? Well, the board met once a month, maybe more often if they needed to. And they met because they had no office. They met at the taverns, um, later the hotels, because they didn't acquire an office until 1836. And they would meet pretty much at the conclusion of their own business day. The guys who formed these, uh, who were the early directors of this company, uh, we had a, um, we had carpenters and master builders, we had silversmiths, we had ironmongers. So these were people who had active everyday lives. They would come together at the end of the day at the taverns. They would have their dinners or their suppers and their bowls of punch or whatever. And they would review all of the work of the preceding weeks. And that would include taking a careful look at all the surveys of the properties that were submitted for insurance. Because it was the board who set the rates and decided whether or not a property would be accepted. Was it accessible at the time? It was an accessible company, I guess, in reality, but I don't know that, I don't think anyone was ever assessed. They were very lucky. They had very rigid and strict underwriting guidelines. Um, and as a result, perhaps, and also because uh, there was a lot of construction of brick and stone here in the city, so that was another good safety feature, they had very few losses. Right. They really made it through quite easily. The way, of course, that the policies work is that it was a seven-year renewable term policy, but you paid an upfront deposit, and the company made its money by lending that deposit money out at interest. So they knew they had it for seven years, so they could certainly lend it for that period of time. Right, a perpetual model. And then, well, it was the pre-perpetual, but yes, it, it led to an easy transition to perpetual. And you mentioned the underwriting standards. Um, I believe then the contribution ship, uh, in effect, gave birth to the next company you've already mentioned, which had different underwriting standards. you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, so the company was without rival in the city and actually, of course, in the colonies. 
until 1784, when the war, the Revolutionary War, having successfully ended, the members of this company of the contribution ship voted at one of their annual meetings to no longer insure houses with trees in the front. Mm-hmm. And as I look at the people who attended that meeting, one of them who was not a policyholder, which seemed unusual, was the fire engine manufacturer or a fire engine manufacturer. And I really believe that he persuaded them that a tree in full bloom in front of the house would make it very difficult for his engines to push the water through to the fire. Hmm. But having said that, so rather they voted to, um, that basically members could not have trees in front of their homes. You could have them in the back, you could have them on the sides, but not in front. But rather than cut down those trees that were so gracefully lining the streets of Philadelphia at this point, a number of policyholders broke away and formed their a second insurance company, the Mutual Assurance Company, or as it became known, the Green Tree. Right, that's, that's the story. And then fire marks, uh, we know about them, they're collectible. We also have a collection of fire marks in our Washington DC office on loan uh, to us. Uh, original fire marks, some, you know, somewhat valuable. But what can you tell us about the role of fire marks and and how they were uh, a part of the um, early marketing and um, served other purposes back in this period? Sure. Well, fire marks originated in London with those early insurance companies. And the reason for that was that it was the insurance companies in London that hired the firefighters. Each had its own uh, brigade. They hired watermen from the Thames who, when fire broke out, would drop what they were doing, rush to the scene of the fire. They quickly realized they needed to mark the buildings that came under the particular care of that particular company. We are starting to think that rather than just turn away if they saw the mark of a rival company, perhaps if the Sun Fire Brigade showed up and saw the hand-in-hands mark on the building, they would still put out the fire and just bill the hand-in-hand. But that's where the legend began, that you had to have a fire mark or the fire would not be put out. Mm-hmm. Here in the colonies, because with we don't know if the Friendly Society of Charleston had a fire mark. One does not survive. They, they may well have had one. Um, but we do know that one of the first actions of the board of directors here at the Philadelphia Contribution Ship was to commission fire marks. So we think that they realized they had great advertising value. Mm-hmm. We also think that they could have been used to discourage arson. You know, someone seeing a mark on the building would think, oh, well, you know, John Jones won't be as inconvenienced by my burning his house down because it's the whole policyholder group that would be paying for his rebuilding. In any event, in 1755, one of the first fires was at Edward Shippen's house, and there was a little note in the minutes after this fire saying, that they noticed that damage had been done through indiscretion, which might have been avoided had the mark been put up. And from that point on, every contribution ship policyholder had to have a fire mark on their house. Exactly. 
So up to more recent times, and, and now turning more to uh, historic preservation, as we wrap up with a couple more questions, you and I worked probably 10 years ago or so because Grindstone Alley had a an historical marker that had become worn and needed to be replaced. It happens that NAMIC had, well, first, why don't you tell about what Grindstone Alley is and then whatever significance and, and the reason for that marker that we uh, we replaced, I don't know, probably 10 years ago now? Yeah, just about 10 years. I think you're right. Well, Grindstone Alley is a little alley that runs off of Market Street or High Street as it would have been when Grindstone Alley was created, back to Church Street, which is leads right into church. And it was where the Union Fire Company kept their equipment. So in the 18th century, they had no reason to have a firehouse because they had minimal equipment. The various members of the company had their buckets and they had some ladders and they had salvage bags and things like that. They had one small fire engine. So Grindstone Alley was apparently where the ladders, etc., were kept. And um, I guess it was in the early 20th century that it was decided it would be suit uh, suitable to mark this alley with a little plaque that NABIC was good enough to put in and it was placed on the side of a brick building right there. And over the years, you're right, it's just faded to the point where you couldn't even read it. So uh, one of the park rangers who was a volunteer firefighter said, let's apply to the Pennsylvania Historical and Museum Commission and see if we can't get one of those wonderful state markers, the blue and gold markers, out in front on Market Street, right at the intersection of the alley, so that more attention is drawn to this historic location. And NAMIC was generous enough to pay for that um, plaque to go in, and at the same time, we managed to have a new plaque made for the side <laughs> of the brick building that's far more legible and installed. Well, we were happy to do it. And uh, so last question, um, today, you know, I'm lucky to have been to the contribution ship uh, many times. And could you just describe the, uh, the building itself, where it fits into the history and, and what kind of uh, materials and, and archive documents uh, are there in the lobby? Sure. Um, well, the contribution ships, Permit, first permanent office was built for them in 1835 to 36 by Thomas Eustick Walter, who later went on to design the Capitol Dome and Wings in Washington. The building's a National Historic Landmark. It is still our um, corporate headquarters. And it is the last of the Greek Revival style buildings. So it doesn't look like your typical insurance office building these days. But we have um, within this main building and of course we have offices in an adjoining building where much of the um, actual underwriting accounting etc is carried on but here in the 212 building we have a small museum area that we welcome visitors to provided i can be here to show you around and it's where our archives are still kept uh, our records go all the way back to 1752 and we have a number of pieces of business equipment, those early fire marks, et cetera, that date from the 18th and 19th, and of course now the 20th century. So we love sharing them with other people. 
We welcome uh, visitors either here or to our website. As I said, our archives are online and you can explore the surveys to see if anyone, um, you could see what type of properties Benjamin Franklin owned or even your great, great, great grandfather, perhaps as if you, if you had relatives who lived in the Philadelphia area. So it's kind of fun as well as our early minutes. I used to laugh and say that I think we have the first official job description in America. It was written on page two of the minutes of 1752, what they expected of the clerk. Wow, wow. Yeah. Well, Carol, thank you. This has been uh, tremendously interesting and I think very important just that we understand uh, our, it, our history as an industry and uh, of course this prominent founding father that uh, helped create the contributionship and that we all love to reference as uh, part of the, the mutual insurance industry in America even today. So thanks for spending time with us. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. And as we just learned from Chuck's interview, there's a lot of history among mutuals. And now in recognition of NAMIC's 125th anniversary, we're taking a look back at our own storied history. In today's Mutual Minute, Namico President and CEO Tim Sullivan reads a passage from A Century of Commitment, describing the boom in membership that took place during the 1910s. This decade, 1911 to 1920, was one of great growth within the mutual insurance industry. Specialized services would be required from NAMIC to meet the changing needs of a growing membership. At the beginning of this period, NAMIC reported 42 members, and by 1920, records indicate membership had increased to 563. Included among these new members were hundreds of class mutuals, or companies organized to meet the insurance needs of specialty businesses, such as milling, florists, lumber, or hardware dealers. In the century since then, NAMIC's membership has continued to grow. Today, more than 1,400 members belong to the association, making it the largest property casualty trade association in the United States, serving regional and local mutual insurance companies on main streets across America, as well as many of the country's largest national insurers. Listen for more Mutual Minutes in the weeks ahead on our journey to historic Boston for NAMIC's 125th annual convention. And that's a wrap for this episode of Insurance Uncovered. We'll be back with more insurance news and information on February 19th. As always, if you have a topic or issue you'd like us to uncover, just let us know. You can send us an email at uncovered at Until next time, I'm Kathy Imus. Have a terrific day.